0: life is going to give you challenges struggles it's going to force you to face your fears even though these may feel like your worst enemy in truth these are actually your greatest allies my name is lance icos welcome to the university of adversity hey what's up everybody welcome back to the show this is your first time here welcome if you're a regular listener welcome back Thank you for joining us today at University of Adversity. Today's episode is going to be very educational. It's going to be, we're going to be unpacking a lot of the things that we don't know about in social media marketing, advertising, and the law that pertains to a lot of these things that we do every day that we may be overlooking. So my next guest, he's an advertising attorney and he focuses on e-commerce and social media marketing. His name is Robert Frund and he's an attorney based in Los Angeles. And like I said, focuses on e-commerce and social media marketing. Rob represents brand owners, agencies, and creators. He's also the founder of Influencers IQ, an influencer compliance training and certification program. Before getting his own firm, Rob honed his legal skills working at Greenberg Torig LLP, one of the largest and most respected international firms. Rob has lectured about advertising law, at the University of Southern California, as well as the University of San Diego. And he's also been quoted in the New York Times on those issues. So I this, this conversation, this interview was structured based on my general curiosity. So I put myself in the position of asking him a lot of questions that I wanna know about the industry, about my podcast, about talking about copywriting, talking about, um, Trademarking, talking about things about social media, what you can and cannot do. With advertising, um, there's a lot of stuff we unpack here and we have a good general conversation about podcasting, about social media, and I think you guys will get a lot out of it. So it's one of those ones, it's, it's more of an educational episode rather than you know a really crazy story. But I really believe that what's going on in the world and the adversity that's going on a lot of people are going to be online. So I think we should really do our due diligence, and really figure out what we need to know in order to um, navigate the social media online space. If we're starting a business, if we're in e-commerce, if we're an influencer, we got to know kind of the general layout of the rules so that we don't get sued or whatever. So Robert really unpacked this. And I highly suggest right now, even before you listen to this episode, go follow him on Instagram. He's also on LinkedIn, but I found him on Instagram because he has these awesome clips, these awesome videos speaking about these different topics that we get into. But the way I really looked at it, I thought, wow, this guy's got some really awesome information. And I went through and I I learned a lot from it. So if you don't get anything from this episode, you get a ton from his Instagram account. But I'm very confident that we unpack a lot here. And I know you guys are gonna wanna follow him because his content is really useful and very helpful and I encourage you to check it out. So um, let me know if you guys get value from this. If you feel somebody needs to get hear this, share it with a friend. Please rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Obviously I push Apple because of the rating system. Five star review is greatly appreciated. But as long as you subscribe wherever you're at, I'm also happy with that and helps the show grow. We're also available on YouTube and um, subscribe there as well. I do wanna let you guys know that this sound quality of this episode isn't gonna be as great great as the last one, at least from my end, um, some of the other ones, because I've been having some technical difficulties. I have two different mics, something happened and it's making robotic noises and I just don't know what it is yet. So forgive me in advance, I'm gonna fix it and I had to do this just on my regular sound. So hopefully you can bear with it um. There's a lot of, Robert has great sound, there's a lot of information, and um, yeah, I know you'll get a lot out of it. So, enjoy the episode. Robert Fruin, coming right up. Here we go, Robert, after all the technical difficulties, here we are, what's up, man?
1: Yeah. How's it going? <laughs> Good to see you.
0: Good to see you too, man. Um, so, I saw some of your content on social media, and a lot of uh, your videos, your micro content, is really useful really valuable and i'm sure that i'm not the first person to say that because there's so many things going on in the social media marketing world advertising from platform to platform and i think a lot of people underestimate the rules and what what you're allowed to do what you can't do and i think bringing you on here is going to be super helpful because there's a lot of things like even in the videos and i'll make sure i link your uh, Instagram to the show notes so people can go check it out and kind of go through because you have like a smorgasbord of videos there and yeah man I would love to just kind of dive into the advertising of social media and how that can help people today because you know in a world full of adversity going on in the world a lot of people are online a lot of people are having business online and I would love if we could really like unpack some of the key points so before we get into that how about kind of just walking us through a little bit of your story and how did you get into all this stuff?
1: Sure. So I've, I'm an attorney here in Los Angeles. I've been practicing in LA for, I guess it's about nine years now. Um, I started at a large international law firm called Greenberg Traurig. It's one of the biggest in the world. It's typically what people think of when they think of big law. Um, and I was there for about seven years. And when I was there, I was in the litigation department. So no transactional stuff other than when contracts sort of turned bad and people had to sue about it and litigate those issues. Um, so I was litigating hundred percent of the time and sort of within the litigation department, uh, a lot of what I did was class action defense work and at firms of that size, most of your clients are large corporations sometimes high net worth individuals and in the consumer class action defense which is like kind of a niche area that area that i was working in most of the time a lot of these class actions have to do with false advertising claims and the way that businesses are marketing their products and services because it's an area of law where if you they're they're sort of amenable to becoming class actions. If you screw up an ad in a certain way and everyone sees the same ad, then it's not so difficult to turn that into a class action because everyone has been harmed in the same way, which is one of the requirements of putting that kind of case together. So that's a lot of what I did during my time at that firm. Towards the later years that I was there, we had more and more clients come to us for sort of litigation avoiding type consulting almost work. A a brand or a business wants to say like, you know, you've helped us get out of these situations or we've seen the work you've done to dig someone out of a lawsuit. Let's figure out how we can avoid that in the first place. And so for example, there's a big video game company that ran, they were about to release a big title. They saw that another company had gotten in trouble for, Uh, allegedly false advertising in connection with the game that was coming out. So they ran all their ads by us to sort of point out the issues and point out the risks and explain, you know, you definitely need to correct this. This is kind of risky. Here's the territory you're getting into if you run a sale this way and that kind of thing. And for me, that was a lot more satisfying professionally than the actual litigation. It's, you know, clients are usually in a better mood when they're not actively involved in a lawsuit and it it it's nice to be able to help a business just be able to focus on what they're in business to do rather than, you know, throwing money at a lawsuit on the defense side to try to get them out of it. So when I decided to leave that firm to open my own practice, I thought if I can just do 100% of the time what I like doing the most, that, is, that would be the most satisfying career option for me. And in my mind, what that looked like was doing that kind of work for business owners and talent and creators to understand the deals that they're getting into, understand the lay of the land with advertising and marketing and allow them to just thrive in their business and hopefully not have to be involved in litigation. If you're in business long enough, you're going to get sued. It's just, it's going to happen sooner or later. So I still do litigate a fair amount, but the, the core of my practice right now is helping, especially e-commerce businesses and social media marketing, people involved in that space, understand what the risks are so that then you can make the business judgment decision of whether you want to take on that risk. So that's what I do.
0: Super important, man. Like, w- how long have you been specifically in this arena of advertising and social media? Like, how has that been relatively... Special-
1: yeah, the social media part, I really started focusing on more when I opened my own practice. And part of it was just sort of spending more time on social media th- to do my own marketing. Right. And th- and another part of it honestly was watching the one of the documentaries about the fire festival. I watched both of them. Yeah. But this was in yeah, what well, that must have been 2017, 2018. And while I was aware of course, through working at this stuff for years already, like I understand advertising laws and had that background, but some of the issues that really came into focus in that documentary had to do with influencer marketing and how influencers are promoting brands in ways that are similar, sort of similar, and have a lot of overlap to more traditional celebrity endorsement deals. But there's all these nuances with marketing on Instagram, and how little attention naturally a lot of people are paying to what the actual rules are and how the way people market on social media changes much more quickly than regulators are able to pay attention to and then try to figure out okay well for example what's the ftc's guidance with respect to influencer marketing on instagram it takes them a while to get up to speed sometimes ultimately the rules that come out from federal agencies like the FTC don't really reflect in my opinion the typical user experience and how people use social media so thinking more about those issues after watching that documentary I, I was doing a lot of research on my own just because it was really interesting to me to figure out like sort of proactively if a client came to me and was wanted to run an influencer marketing campaign what are all the areas that i would need to know to guide them through that. And so that is sort of how I started growing my own Instagram account, just looking into all this stuff and thinking that's interesting to me. Maybe it'll be interesting to other people too. And as more and more people enter the market and realize the value of marketing on social media, there's, you know, no barrier to entry pretty much. You can do you can make advertising on social media, essentially free. Of course you can spend a lot of money and get a lot of return. Also, there's so many different ways to do it. And there's so many more people, especially during the pandemic right now, who realize that the internet is a tool they can use. Social media is a marketing tool that are entering that field. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason that some of my content has resonated with people and I've developed a lot of clients through it is just, for the same reasons that it was interesting to me in the first place. It's kind of new. It takes sort of traditional advertising, legal issues. And hopefully I'm helping people figure out how it works on platforms like Instagram and YouTube and Facebook and so on.
0: Dude, it's awesome. So, okay, well, let's get right into it. So with your experience so far in the, the arena of social media, let's, let's talk about Instagram. What are the top three things that you see people doing that kind of make you think oh shit like these guys don't really know that this could be a problem or or what is what is like the top three things that has your attention mostly that you've noticed that keeps coming up
1: things that keep coming up sort of general categories um, brands running promotions typically using influencer marketing not understanding the FTC's requirements for the disclosures that you have to make when you run those campaigns.
0: Can you give us an example? Like just, sure. like, just so people can really, because I know that like a lot of this, these terms, most people won't understand, and I really want to break sure. it down so that people can get a real clear picture of it.
1: I'll give you an example. I think probably anyone who spends enough time on Instagram has seen hashtag ad in the bottom of a caption, where someone's promoting some product or other. The reason hashtag ad is there is because the FTC requires that any, what they call a material connection between an advertiser, like the brand that's running a campaign, and the endorser, in this case an influencer, if there's a material connection between those two, it needs to be disclosed. So what that means is, if you are compensating an influencer for example for running some promotional post or if you gave them free product in exchange for a story shout out or something like that or any other kind of incentive where there's a connection between the brand and the influencer that would affect the credibility of the endorsement like if i see someone that i follow on instagram promoting some like teeth whitening product it would be important for me in making a decision to buy that or not to know that they were paid to do it, or they got, you know, free toothpaste for life or something like that. So if you, if both the brand and the influencer don't make that disclosure, then they're violating the FTC act and there's potential repercussions for doing that. And one of the ways that you can comply with that disclosure requirement is to include hashtag ad. There's other ways to do it that look more natural than like just that but that's like the classic way for the brand and the influencer to comply with that rule so there's like I said there's different ways to do it it's kind of context specific and um, but it's so so common for both brands and influencers and agencies that are involved in the middle to either not be aware of the requirement or not do it correctly and it's, it's very easy and common for people to think like, well, I have so many friends running so many e-commerce businesses or all of my friends who are promoting products don't do that and no one I know has gotten in trouble. It's just it's one of those things where it's a dice roll every time you don't comply. And earlier this year, the FTC had a, a, um, a case that ended up a tea company had to pay more than $14 million because they, their influencers were not using the hashtag disclosure in the right way, like literally in the right placements within the caption. They said they had a hashtag teamy partner, which is an acceptable way to show the connection. But because he had to click more to see it, the FTC said, oh, you're not complying with this part of our rules. And so the penalty was $14 million. And so it's, It's just, it's such a common thing that people, I don't think, appreciate the fact that you can comply and not have it be so crippling or make it seem like, you know, obviously part of the appeal of influencer marketing is that it seems authentic and that it seems like less uh, fake than just the brand running an ad. You know, you have a connection maybe with the influencer and it seems authentic you can still comply and not totally tank the appeal of having an influencer run your campaign. But it is it's a common thing, just disclosure of connections in ads on social media. Interesting. So hopefully hopefully that explains what the concept is and how people are screwing it up.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. what was the other what was the other one that you were saying that
1: a, cu- a couple others. Are sort of overlapping or related issues that just have to do with understanding the basics of how copyrights work on social media.
0: What's the difference between copyright and trademark for those out there that have heard those terms, but let's say they haven't trademarked their brand yet or copyrighted? Unpack us for that a little bit, too, because um, yeah. I know I don't really understand the difference. Like, I do, sure. but I don't.
1: Sure. Uh, a copyright is when you create some original work in, and the term is in a fixed, tangible medium, if you take a photograph, or you create a video, or you write a screenplay, or you make a drawing or something like that, at the time that you create that work, by default, you have the copyright to that work. And that means that no one else can reproduce it without your permission. What a trademark does is allow people to understand the source of a product or a service. So what a logo like trademarking a logo or a design, what that does is prevents a competitor from using your logo or design to confuse people as to the source. So it's really just a source identifier. And that's what that protects, which is different than a copyright. Now you could copyright your logo, the design itself, and you can also trademark it but what they do is protect different things
0: mm, okay now yeah cuz i've i've seen i've experienced some some people trying to knock off my logo and my brand as well different different ways and it was something that i know isn't going away but it's like at the same time it's it's such a strange world because so many people can like use a little add a word in or take a word out and kind of have the same sort of design. And it's kind of a gray area, right? Unless you really trademark that specific, that specific name, like let's say for university of adversity, for instance, I've had people, I've had people like try and do Instagram accounts that were that after I've created it, I've had YouTube people post YouTube channels that are close. And then I'm like, what, this is, this is my brand. Right. And I haven't gone to the step of doing it all like the trademarking and all that. And that concerns me a little bit. And I'm sure there's a lot of brands out there that are like, do I need to trademark this? Can somebody, you know, what's the consequences of not, you know, like what happens if you just keep going as is, like if we didn't trademark or if we didn't do that, like what's the consequence for that?
1: Right. And sort of with a disclaimer that I don't claim to be a trademark expert, Mm -hmm. but Registering your trademark submitting an application for a trademark registration is not that expensive. I definitely recommend hiring an attorney to to help with it, but it's not going to be extremely costly. But what that does is it makes it much easier for you to uh, prohibit someone else from using something similar. If you have your trademark registered on the books, And someone else tries to apply for something that's too similar, then if everything works how it's supposed to, and they try to trademark it, their application will be rejected because it'll be too close to yours. Mm -hmm. And if someone does just straight up rip off your name or your logo or something like that, and you don't have it registered, you have a much steeper uphill battle ahead of you trying to convince a court like, look, I've been using this for this amount of time everybody who sees this knows that it's from me and not from them. It's just a much more challenging thing that you don't need to put that challenge in front of yourself. It's not that complicated to submit a trademark application.
0: Yeah. And I've seen it in podcast titles as well. Like, you know, this is the reality is every podcasts are growing. Personal brands are growing. And I'm noticing a lot of people having very similar names to podcasts. Mm-hmm. So, adding in something here or there taking out. And it's just very strange to me. Right. And it's happening a lot. And I don't think people realize, like, as we, as things keep you grow, like people don't, so people have to take this step and make sure this happens, but where are the rules or are we, are we still in a gray area for like podcasting and, and titles like that? Like, where does that even where, who's setting the rules for that stuff?
1: Well, you should be able to trademark the name of a podcast. And again, I, would, I, I don't want to set out anything definitively because no, I, work, sure. I work closely with another attorney who handles trademark issues for our clients. Um, but you know, it's an essential part of branding and developing and protecting a brand is applying for trademarks where you can. So if, if you have built a brand like you have around this podcast, I would encourage you to submit a trademark application for it. Um In terms of whether it 's a gray area, a lot of times trademark cases are very very fact specific and it's it is one of those areas where it, it can be difficult to say you know this is absolutely violating or this is absolutely not and you know it 's somewhat similar to copyright cases in that respect because And a lot of times in a copyright case, the standard is, is this confusingly similar? Is somebody going to look at this picture and look at that picture and think, okay, I can't tell the difference. Literally, courts will go through that and try to figure out, is this confusingly similar or not? So it can get gray areas in an appropriate way to put that because it's not always clear what's fair game and what isn't. And I think that there's a, especially in copyright, there's, um, sort of a confusion over, you know, well, what I'm doing is fair use, so it's okay. I think that there's some misunderstanding about what fair use means and and how strong a defense to a copyright claim that is and, and what happens to copyrights when you share stuff on social media or repost or retweet. And uh, it's an important area to just have a sort of basic understanding of so that you don't step in it uh, on social media. I mean, right now, a very common case that comes up over and over again is celebrities posting picture photographs of themselves on their own Instagram and then they have a copyright lawsuit from the photographer. Because the oh, pho- wow. It's common for people to think like if this is a picture of me, I can do what I want with it. But that's that's not true unless you have some kind of license agreement or release or other agreement with a photographer. Like just because you're in it doesn't mean that you have the rights to that picture, which seems backwards, but it, it's a, a very common, you know, some people would say copyright troll kind of lawsuit, but it happens all the time. And a related issue, sort of the third big topic that I was going to mention was uh, publicity rights on social media. Every single person has the right to control how their name and image is used commercially. Like you can't take a picture of me and run it in an ad without my permission. If you do that, you're violating my publicity right, which is a different thing from a privacy right. And at least in California, the law is very, very much on my side in that situation. I can get mandatory attorney's fees, which makes it much more attractive for a lawyer to help me plus mandatory minimum damages, even if, I, even if I can't show that I was harmed at all, I'm going to get a set guaranteed amount. And this, people inadvertently violate publicity rights all the time. One, one way this could happen is, let's say that you're a brand and you paid an influencer to take a picture with, I don't know, your energy drink or something at a pool party. And the influencer is at the party, takes a picture of herself with the energy drink, and she's got like four friends behind her. If that brand doesn't have a publicity rights release from all those friends, they have violated all of the friends' publicity rights if that influencer posts that content. Because now the, brand, it's, the brand's advertising and they're using those four people in the picture for a commercial purpose, and they don't have the permission to do that. Mm. So it, it's one of those things that like, oh, well, who would even think about that? You know, These people probably won't mind that they're in the picture. And some people will think, oh, if I share something on Instagram, then it's in the public domain, and if a brand takes my picture, then there's nothing I can do, because I posted it publicly. So it's out there, right? But it, it's not. It, it's a separate thing from a privacy, right? So. It's just another area that I think, at least from what people share with me, they're not even really aware that it's a potential trap you could step in.
0: So would you say, let's say in the podcast world, you know, we, we record this, we chop it up into content and then we post it. Mm-hmm. Is that technically allowed? Like how, cause everybody does that, right? How, how do we get around that so that it's compliant? So that Cause we have like a thing that people check off mm-hmm. saying that we can use this content, that kind of thing. Or is there right. another level that we have to go through in order to comply with it? And there's also people, people do it all the time as well. Retargeting on, on social media with a specific clip of that guest to their audience or whatever. And I know that most influencers, you know, that are a lot of them out there would probably not mind, but, I'm concerned about the ones that that would, right? How do we get around all that?
1: Right. What you want to do is just have tight enough language in all of your agreements that grants you the usage rights and publicity rights to do what it is that you want to do with the content. I remember signing up for this. I, w- I was paying attention, and you did have me agree to something that I clicked that said, you know, you can use the recording for. I don't remember exactly what it was, but the effect of it would be that, okay, yeah, you can, after this podcast is done, you can use it however you want. Of course, I'm yeah. never gonna make an issue of that because it's a, a big win-win, I think. Certainly a win for me to be on here. Um, so it, I'm not the kind of person that would object to it. But you can see how in other contexts, like if, if for another good example, there was a some uh, mobile phone game designer, created some kind of game related to fashion. I don't know exactly what the game was about, but they took a picture of Selena Gomez as she appeared on the cover of a magazine and used that image of her in the game itself. Oh. And so they, of course they didn't, they didn't, well not of course, but what they didn't do and what they would have needed to do is get permission from her and have some kind of publicity rights release. So she sued them asking for, I believe it was $10 million on the premise that if you had asked me, this would have been, uh, I think she said she charges like 800 grand for uh, Instagram post or something like that, which seems insane. But that, I mean, that's not in the context of celebrity deals. That's not, you know, super crazy. Mm. And so the idea is like, you didn't ask me and now you're presumably making however much money you are selling this game on the internet. And you violated my publicity right. So, it, it you can understand how somebody should be compensated if they built a brand around themselves and they usually make a certain amount of money. And it's just not fair for one game to just get away with it for free if others are having to pay these rates. Um, but to get back to your question, in the context of like this podcast, I think that your release is good enough. I don't. Th- I can't really imagine the situation. It doesn't seem like you're selling access to these episodes or anything. So it's not like, you know, somebody would normally expect payment to come on here. But in any event, the release that you had, where I checked that box, I think has you covered.
0: Yeah, I just think it's such an important, I like to use my podcast as an example, because, you know, we've, we started, we didn't know anything and we've kind of grown and our whole process has grown. And I mean, I have we, I own a podcast agency, right? So I also, I really want to educate people the best way I can and and be as compliant as possible. So kind of learning these things through my own show allows me to teach other people. And um, it's just, it still feels like the wild, wild West, you know, with podcasting and social media, it's like things, they update algorithms, they change things. It's like, all right, you get used to one way and then it changes. And then, you know, you want to make sure that you're compliant And with podcasting. It's it's all part of having that full content that you can reproduce, right? And it's a win-win, you're right, for the for the guests, because we're we're tapping into both audiences, you know, it's a win-win as far as and I think most people that agree to come on podcasts understand what they're they're getting into. You know, I think they understand the value of it, but it's also good to cover your ass too, because I know that there's somebody out there that'll be like, you know, I'm sure it happens to everybody at some point and it's really good to cover the steps. So, um, I wanted to also ask specifically, I like to focus on Instagram because there it's such a misleading platform too. And, you know, with people misleading people into, you know, with a bit, followers and what do you see as an issue with that real fake, the, you know, fake style of, of followers and misleading people? Like, where does that sit in everything? Like, where does that, yeah. where does that, that is, come
1: up? That is a big and very interesting question. Um, influencer fraud is a term that generally refers to people with inflated follower counts. It makes it much more difficult for a brand to figure out what's my return on throwing a dollar at this influencer who has 100,000 or claims to have 100,000 followers. You know, if that influencer is a hundred thousand followers, maybe all of them, maybe her entire audience is located in a country where you don't even sell your product. So there's basically probably no value to that. Or maybe they're all just, you know, accounts that she purchased through some shady or maybe not growth service or something like that. Maybe you get a much higher return on somebody who just has a thousand followers that are actively in the same niche area as what you're trying to promote. So the fact that it is so easy, like tomorrow if I wanted to buy an account that just has a million followers with it, I I could make that happen, anybody could.
0: Yeah.
1: And it makes it just that much more difficult for, for marketers to figure out, all right, what is the return actually gonna be with this influencer? And there's a whole, there are multiple services out there that will attempt to figure out the authenticity of a given influencer based on metrics like engagement rates and how quickly did the account grow and things like that, uh, which can sort of help with the problem. Legally, it's maybe even more interesting, at least to me, there was a case uh, either last year or the year before, and I can't, uh, sorry, I don't remember exactly when, but. There's a case against this company called Davumi that's in the business of selling fake followers. The New York attorney general said that selling fake followers is illegal. And that was sort of the first time that I'm aware of that any government agency came out and said that. And at the time that that happened, I was thinking, well, it, it, it that makes good sense that if you have or I was thinking that it should, it should apply to someone who buys them too, because it is misleading. If I'm, if I'm a brand and I have just started out and I have, and someone looks at like, let's say I sell socks or something. And somebody looks at my page and it says, you know, 330,000 followers. And this other stock company has grown their account organically and has 10,000 real followers. I look more legit to a lot of people and I'm probably stealing some market share from a brand that's doing everything correctly.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's, that's unfair. And I read an article about how I believe that that the side company that's doing everything correctly would have a good competitor to competitor false advertising plan. Mm. About within the same year, the FTC came out and said, and the, against the same company, Divumi, that buying and selling sell, sorry, Buying and selling fake followers is illegal. Period. Like full stop. And the their justification was it undermines the marketplace for the exact reason I just said. It 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 it's very misleading if you just have this inflated follower count count. But what's interesting about that is it leaves open the question, like, well, what is a fake follower? In, in the in the case of Davumi. The followers were like as fake as you could possibly get they were literally like just software bot accounts like there's no real person connected to them you pay x amount of money and then you have all these like actual fake accounts but what you know what if you pay for one of these growth services where there are actual real accounts connected to somebody but maybe they're in a part of the world that isn't relevant to you or
0: very common. This is yeah. this is this Absolutely. is everywhere. Everyone says that there's are real, right? right?
1: Right. People promise real growth and real yeah. authentic followers. But you know, what does that really mean? If you have people that then never engage with your content and never intended to, and the only reason they're following you is because of some service you bought. And it it overlaps a bit with the popular way to grow accounts, especially in the last year or so of doing these big celebrity giveaways. Or loop giveaways where you pay, you know, thousands of dollars to be one of the accounts everyone has to follow to enter something. Yeah. Are those real followers? I mean, if the only reason someone is following you is to win a Tesla, do you, is that a real following? I think you can make the argument that that's not. But it's, it's one of those things that's going to take a long time if he ever gets around to it. Or if the, enough of these things make it to court before you have a real clear idea of like what a fake follower even is. Yeah,
0: that's such a good point. Those those giveaways, and it's you know super easy as well online to see. There may be there's there's a lot of influence out there that do have their real followers, but you can you know that they've inflated it, they've padded it a little bit. Like you could, you know like because there's certain people that are kind of equal same status, yet some have like two two and a half million and some have right. like two hundred thousand. And I don't personally care. I mean, social media for me is like I had my account hacked. I lost mine. I had a pretty good following, but we also I also had hired people to help me grow it. And, you know, you also hear these things and, and you know, it's real. And it's like you, 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 you trust that the company that you're buying from is, is true. And they may very well be. There's a lot of ways to grow it. But authentically now where I, you know, with my new account, I feel like the best way is to just, is just to be yourself. And, but I have noticed reaching out to people via Instagram has completely changed. And it's been a real cool test to see like the same people that saw me with a certain amount followers and a now kind of lower don't, I don't get the response rate, which is really interesting. And that's the kind of world we're living in the social proof world. And I can understand why people want to, you know, do the growth, do that, do that. I think there's, there's ways to do it ethically, but there's also ways that are shady and it's just such a strange area because you're right. It is hard to tell because technically a follower is a follower. It's a person. But it's not like it's a real, it's not like it's a real person that is buying into whatever you, you're, you know. It's it's misleading, right?
1: Right. Like, and yeah. So you mentioned like you can usually tell when someone's done some padding.
0: Yeah.
1: Like you and I know that because we're in it and we look at yeah. it every day. A yeah. lot of people, a lot of people, will not are not even aware that you can buy followers, and yeah. so. From the FTC's standpoint of you know we need to protect every consumer out there, they're going to look at something like that. And I'm, I don't want to speak for them, but I am, I know where they're coming from. Their concern is going to be the people who aren't like you and I, who aren't on social media all day, uh, or you know a large part yeah. of the day. Yeah. Are, are not going to be able to, are not going to be aware that this follower account doesn't mean that 300,000 people actually like this account.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, it, there isn't a big opportunity for uh, deception there. And the FTC has also said that we we talked about those endorsements that need disclosures. If there's a connection, they've said that uh, even something like a like on a post constitutes an endorsement. Now there's no way there, there's no offer of help of like, well, how am I supposed to make a disclosure when I like something? It's impossible. You know, they they don't go the next step of like, well, what are we supposed to do? But they'll say, yeah, something like liking content can be an endorsement well what about a follower count? that seems like if i'm following or you can make the argument pretty easily that if i'm following this brand i like them and that's the same as me showing my support for them but if i'm only doing that because i want to i'm incentivized to win a car or something that's not so different from someone sending me free product in exchange for a review it's just you know it's on the same spectrum of I am showing support for this brand because I'm getting something and not because I genuinely like it. Uh, And it's the kind of issue that I know the FTC is trying to wrangle with. They have bigger fish to fry right now with COVID, but, uh, but it's, it's the kind of issue that continues to evolve and is just inherently really interesting to me. And it's the kind of thing that I like helping brands navigate.
0: What about, I've heard of this happening is these, these influencer giveaways them promising a certain amount and then not delivering the amount where are they held accountable for this? Because I've heard of this a few times, people have been burned, people, they say they're going to get this, they're going to get these real people, that kind of thing. What, what about those companies that, that promise that?
1: Right. I mean that, that adds a whole, or that gets into a whole nother layer of legal issues with doing business on social media. If you promise someone a result and you don't deliver it, you, at a minimum, have a breach of contract, especially if it's in writing like a DM or anything like that. I'll see that on stories from time to time from people like, you know, enter this giveaway, guaranteed 30K growth. What happens if that doesn't happen?
0: Every single day I see it, man. Every single day there's people doing that crap.
1: If you don't deliver, then yeah, you should be liable. You would be liable for making a promise that you don't deliver on. The the issue is, how are you actually going to enforce that? How are you going to figure out who's behind that Instagram account? Where in the world they live? How are you going to serve them with a lawsuit? Is it going to be worth it? How much money are you out? all of these considerations go into it. And especially in individual to individual deals on Instagram, like someone wants to sell their Instagram page, which happens all the time, all day, every day. It's really important to do some upfront diligence on who's on the other side of the deal, get their name, figure out where they live, have them take a photograph with their driver's license or something like that. So that when you make a contract for that deal, you can at least figure out if you'd ever be able to enforce it. If I'm selling or if I yeah, if I'm selling a page to somebody who lives in a different country, how am I I need to think about if it came down to suing them, how am I going to make that happen?
0: Yeah.
1: I need to put in my contract that, you know, if it were me, I would say, okay, California law is going to apply. You agree that California has jurisdiction. That's a super important first step for me to be able to just use my hometown courts to do that. But I'm still going to have to serve this person with a lawsuit wherever they live. And if they're in Russia or something, that's going to be a huge challenge. And so it, it sort of gets into the issue of, of course, having a contract for any deal that's important is a must, but you also need to think about the practical reality of how much do I know about this person and will I actually be able to enforce it? And then like, let's say you do serve someone across the world with a lawsuit and you file a lawsuit here in California where you've agreed to and they ignore it. And then you get a default judgment entered for whatever amount against that person. How are you going to collect it? How can you figure out where their bank accounts are? Yeah. So those are the kind of things that some people will think, oh, well, I have a contract, so I'm good. The contract's only as good. It only helps you to the extent you can enforce it. So. Doing diligence on who's on the other side of your deal is so important.
0: Yeah, I saw that in one of your videos and that's really helpful. Okay, so let's, for example, I'm in Canada, you're in the States, different rules. How do we, as far as, it's crazy because we share the same airwaves and social media, but we share different countries. Right. How do you, now I'm not going to ask you about the laws in Canada, but how do those intertwine, like, if as far as, is there like a specific social media law for the States or is there a social media law for Canada? Like, is there a difference? Where are we on that? Because, you know, it all comes down to really what's going on in the country unless social right. media is kind of the world, the world perspective and they all apply. Like does that? Where do we sit with that?
1: So it is different. There are different laws in our respective countries. I don't know. I'm not an expert in Canadian law, but I understand that they're, there's a lot of overlap in terms of advertising laws, at least. And so there are a couple of ways to approach it. If, we, if you and I were to do a deal where you're selling me something, in the contract, we'll talk about which country's laws apply. I'm going to want California to apply. You're going to want Canada, maybe. Maybe I won't really care that much if Canadian contract law is the same. But the point is, like, we can agree on which country's laws will apply. And we can also agree on where we'll go to work out a dispute if it comes down to it. We can do courts over here, courts where you are. We can choose not to go to court and arbitrate somewhere internationally. All of that is up to us. In terms of what you can do on social media and what laws will apply, you have to consider where your audience is. And especially if you're doing something commercial, like you know, advertising something to sell, on social media, your main consideration is where your customers are. If you have customers in California and they rely on some advertisement and they've been deceived, they probably will be able to say to have California's laws apply to you even if you don't have any physical presence here this is and um, it's a little bit not quite as clear in the context of if you're only running an Instagram page to do your marketing but in the context of like a website where i can buy something off your website if i'm in california and i can have something sent to california you're going to be on the hook for ca- for complying with california's laws oh, okay. and every state in the every state in the country has different laws to some degree california is almost always the most consumer friendly So a general rule of thumb is that if you're complying with what California's laws are, you're probably good for the rest of the country. Of course, there are exceptions to that, but you need to think about where your audience is and who your customers are.
0: Well, what about if you own a business, let's say in Canada, but a lot of your clients are in the States at all? Does it fall under Canadian law?
1: You will, you want to pay really close attention to the laws of where your clients are.
0: Mm, Okay. Interesting. Because everybody nowadays is, especially being connected on social media. Everybody's doing business with people, especially Canada and the States. It's pretty mm-hmm. much it feels like the same country in a lot of ways, right? Right. And, but it's not, and, and it's really interesting because I don't think a lot of people really understand that. So it's right. gotta pay attention to where our clients actually are.
1: Yeah, and, and again, it's not the kind of thing that you apply in every context across the board, but it's absolutely something that you wanna be mindful of. and to the extent that you can, if it's the kind of thing where you're doing a, where you have a contract in place and you're in a position to set which laws will apply to your deal at least, then you know, you're free to contract those kinds of considerations. Like you can just have them agree that Canadian law applies. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the ads that you put out onto the internet, that's when you need to be much more mindful of where your customers and clients are located.
0: Mm, interesting. Oh, what about, okay, there's another thing involving, I wanted to ask you, involving content sharing. You know, everybody's resharing everybody's stuff, think it's okay, you tag them, whatever. Where do we sit with that? Because I feel like that's something's brewing there too. Somebody, you get burned for sharing something that you shouldn't share because you assume it's posted. Are we allowed to share it or where, does, where do we sit with that?
1: So that the classic lawyer answer is it, it depends. It depends on what you're doing with the content and sort yeah. of how you're sharing it. If, if you were, I think I mentioned like if you're a, a brand and you just take someone's Instagram post, like you, you see a model that you, that's wearing your swimsuit or something. And you want to take that picture and post it to your story or on your brand's page or something. And you think, oh, if I, just, if I tag the model in this post, then we're good. You're not good in that situation. You've got a publicity rights issue, first and foremost, because you're using their image commercially now without their permission, even though they posted it on Instagram.
0: So they post, let's say, like, so they post it on their feed and you share it in your story. Mm-hmm. Like say you see them, you like, and you say, and you share them on your story, uh, that the post that they had, right? That's that's a no no.
1: If you're that swimsuit company and you take that model in your clothing and you reshare it to your brand's story, you have a publicity rights wow. problem. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's crazy.
1: Yeah, even if, well, I mean, it gets a little bit less clear, but there are cases in the copyright context about. You know, just like, let's say I take a picture of my Sony headphones or something and I tag Sony in the photograph and then Sony uses my picture on their page. If I've registered my, uh, my picture with the copyright office, which is only like $35 to do, Sony has a copyright infringement problem on their hands just period. Even, even though, you know, you can argue like I've gave them an implied license to use it, but those arguments have failed from time to time. So just, just because somebody shouts out your brand, it doesn't mean that now you just have free range to do whatever you want with it. Yeah.
0: You must see, you must see like changes happening, like evolving so fast. Like do you yeah, see, I mean, this, it's, this is just such a beast that you're involved in, man. Like yeah, but it's it, it, like growing and growing.
1: Yeah, it's fun for me. I mean, there's a lot of areas of law that are unbelievably boring. I'm fortunate <laughs> that one that's interesting to me, I, I get to practice. And so it's fun for me to stay on top of how things are developing. Like the most recent development I can think of that I spoke about and that has come up in the news is like we were talking about disclosures and how you have to make them in influencer campaigns and that kind of stuff. Uh, I think it was Bounty, the, the um, paper towel company. They were running an influencer campaign on TikTok. And on TikTok, you know, you can have the, that small amount of room for a caption. And the influencer was using like, it wasn't Bounty partner, but it was something like that for their disclosure. The problem or the issue arises when you take a TikTok and share it on another platform like Instagram, the caption gets cut off. So the, the issue for bounty became, well, now you're running ads, you know, influencer campaigns being treated as ads on Instagram, but the disclosure is missing and bounty doesn't get to say, well, you know, that's beyond our control. It's Instagram cuts off the caption. The FTC's take on that is no, you're, you're responsible for making sure that you have a disclosure wherever your content is distributed. So what's bounty supposed to do? The answer was, take that disclosure and, and embed it into the video itself so that you're sure that wherever it's redistributed, the, the disclosure follows the content. And that's like such yeah. a nitpicky thing. But they had to hire a law firm to get them through that and, and respond and, and now comply with that. And it's just one of those things that certainly they didn't think about, like, oh, if someone's going to you know, repost the TikTok on a different platform, But it's just one of those ways where as things evolve, you have to keep thinking about what are these maybe outdated rules that we have to figure out how to comply with now.
0: So where do you see yourself with educating the the masses on this? Because what you have here is so important. And I think with your Instagram is a great start. But do do you see yourself doing any sort of, I don't know, educational program for people did that because I feel like we all need to know the basics, like somebody that signs up for, you want to do a podcast, you want to be on social media, like you're right. There's no gatekeeper to start this stuff. So I feel like there needs to be a, here's what you need to know when you get into this world, because you don't want to get, as you grow, you don't want to get bitten in the ass later, you know, right.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I, I try. I hope that my Instagram account is helpful for people.
0: Awesome, man. It's
1: great. I, I, I do have um, a training specific to influencers and brands that they work with. It's called Influencers IQ. The website's influencersiq.com. And it basically covers a bit about what I covered here today, plus some more issues that brands and influencers will want to keep in mind when they get into that space. And the way it works is it's about an hour of content and there's an exam at the end of it. And if the influencer or whoever's taking it passes the exam with a certain amount, um, you're added to a registry that shows you've completed it. The concept behind that was when the FTC goes after brands for influencer disclosure issues and related non-disclosure problems, what they consistently say they wanna see and when they, when they do an investigation and issue a closing letter, meaning they don't turn it into a lawsuit, a lot of times those letters will say, this brand had training and compliance in place. It was a one-time problem, and they were proactive about fixing it. That is a great way to have the FTC not make an example of you. It's when the FTC feels like this brand didn't really give any thought to training or compliance. That's when they're much more likely to want to make at a bigger problem. And so the concept behind influencers IQ was learn the basics, but also if you're working with influencers, have that additional protection built in for yourself. So you can say, look, not only do our contracts hopefully have the influencer acknowledge that they they understand the rules and what they need to do, but also look, they've all taken this training and they all proved at some point that they understood it. So that's about as good as you can do in terms of if you have to show the FTC, like, look, we've got training and compliance in place. So that's the idea. I'll, I, I do want to expand that and, and have sort of more robust educational stuff out there. Uh, I've just been too busy this year, honestly. Um, but yeah, it's something I definitely want to do if there's appetite for it.
0: um, how are you for time, man? Cause there's a couple questions that just came up that I'd love to ask you. Are you, are you okay for, yeah,
1: I'm, I'm happy to keep going. Um,
0: there's a couple other things. So that, that, that came up in my mind, it's involving podcasting. Now podcasting is a huge thing that is going to be massively growing, right? You see it with Joe Rogan signing with Spotify hundred million. I've heard it's more than that. Um, I've heard of Howard Stern even going to be signed, like talking about signing like $120 million deals and stuff, craziness, right? So I remember when Joe Rogan had to stop going live on YouTube because he was getting, there was reasons for, because he had to stop because there was people taking things out of context or whatever. And it not, what would be the reason for not going live is what I'm trying to get at without you know, <laughs> making it too wordy of a question because somebody like Joe Rogan having to stop live, such a show that is just so many people loved it. But because people were doing certain things involving like ads and stuff or involving mm-hmm. taking out clips out of context, why why do you have to be careful being going live with, with stuff like that, especially when you're sharing important information?
1: Right. I, I hope that would make
0: sense. I hope I Yeah. You
1: know, no, I think I get what you're no. getting at. It's it's definitely a safer move to not broadcast live. One of the reasons is, uh, you know, if he has Jamie pull up some copyrighted content or something, then, you know, he can step into a problem with that. That's like the first thing that pops into my mind for why you might not want to do that.
0: Yeah.
1: I don't really know the details. I haven't, I admit, paid super close attention to his deal with Spotify. But once you leave Joe Rogan the individual and become part of a large corporation that has shareholders like that they're going to want to be much more careful and pay much closer attention to the kind of content that's being put out under their umbrella they have a lot more constituents that they need to be concerned about not upsetting or not saying something that you know would reflect badly on some on some arm of spotify or something like that so that would that's my
0: guess as to why if it's he's coming, still going live a long time ago this would have been about a year over a year ago
1: okay right?
0: going live but now with Spotify he's also having people they're trying to push to get him to get him uh, modified before it goes out like they're trying to get it what's uh-huh. the word uh, censored first right but the whole reason he's there and the whole reason they sign that deal is because it's who he is right and I'm sure the contract that he signed is fine, but it, I, I just I find it interesting how like how 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 podcasts are growing and how this is going to be a huge money maker, massive, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. you know things like things like having to be careful with what you're saying and not you know and it coming back to bite you later. That's why I think you know, re- pre-recording it, and not going live. But then that there's something about that authenticness of being live. That's awesome too.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's a huge part of why he became so popular. People love the like off the cuff takes and he has, he has guests who are edgy and, you know, will say whatever's on their mind, but I can understand not wanting to do it live as you get more, especially as he gets more like politically charged guests on, or people who might be a little bit more controversial, you, you don't, you don't want to put yourself in a situation where maybe someone says something defamatory about the wrong person. And, you know, the last thing you need as a podcast host is to be involved in some kind of defamation lawsuit. Joe Rogan can afford great lawyers, no question about that, but it's still not something that you want to divert time and attention to. And so, you know, of course there's more risk of something like that coming out live and not being able to fix it. Cause once it's broadcast, it's out there. So I'm, I'm sure that went into it to some extent. And you know, the more, the bigger an audience he gets, the more potential risk there is in what he or a guest says on the show.
0: It's crazy, man. The amount of people tuning into podcasts and that just sort of puts precedent on like the value of podcasting and where it's going. And I know there's going to be a whole bunch of new rules that have going to come out and it's going to be, it's going to be challenging. Like I, censorship scares me as well because, you know, there might be a time where we're not allowed to talk about things like not, I don't like that idea, you know, where we have to be super careful because right now there has been this time where podcasting is like the place where you can go for, you know, the real, the real shit, like people's real take on things. Yeah. Other from. Yeah instead of mainstream media and I would hate to see that get all at all censored where people become robots you know
1: yeah I mean I don't think I certainly hope that you know our freedom right now to say pretty much whatever we want on this podcast is not going to be going anywhere anytime soon I think if if we feel restricted it'll start because of you know pressure from groups that, you know, it's so easy with cancel culture or yeah. whatever else to just be woodshedded for an unpopular opinion. Um, you know, fair or not, I, I, I think it's, we're in such a reactive time right now where people are just ready to pick up on some misstep somewhere. Some of it, of course, is justified. I mean, if you go on a podcast and say something deplorable, then yeah, we yeah, should hear about it. But certainly it feels like right now people are much more on the hunt for watching where people make missteps or perceived missteps and then, you know, throwing it all over Twitter. So I think to the extent that, you know, we feel like we're being censored, it, it's more coming from societal pressure and less from a legal standpoint. I mean, there's nothing, that, there's nothing illegal about you or I saying something awful if you, if you were to you know, within some exceptions, but generally we can say what we want. But yeah, I think the appeal of podcasts is exactly that. People like hearing longer form conversations, not just, oh, this guy's agent prepared the five talking points on a talk show and they had the back and forth and then he plugged the book and he got off there. It's like people want to hear someone's actual thoughts on a topic. And I think that's why Joe Rogan is so... Part of why he's so popular is he has such a great range of guests. He's pretty good at just letting them talk and letting them explore the topic, and you know it's less about the it's less about Joe Rogan and more about the guests, which I think is what makes a good podcast a lot of the time.
0: I mean, that guy inspired me to want to do this, you know. Like, and there's some others, even like you know um, Brian Rose on London Real, guys like Tom Bilio, but you know Rogan was always somebody that just I loved how he was able to just have conversations, you know, people can listen to that. And um, that is just so important. And even like with this show, I like, you know, the, obviously the topic is adversity and I've realized how many areas that shows up in life. So I can literally have an organic conversation and still come out with talking about overcoming something, some sort of challenge in the world. Right. And um, yeah, Rogan was definitely somebody that inspired me. And like, I just look at how far things have come. And I feel like we're just in the beginning of podcasting. We're still in the wild, wild west as far as like what can be done. And another thing that came to my mind was like the amount of people. I get pitched every day on LinkedIn for people to help me grow my show and and fake downloads and YouTube. And I'm like, it's crazy. There's, there's, there's so many, which makes me think that there's a lot of people lying about the downloads of podcasts too. And and saying, Oh, I got a hundred million, hundred thousand downloads. Did you? Or is that all bullshit? And that, and I've 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 had this with it's less and less now, but in the beginning, I would pitch somebody, I'm not gonna name names, but I, I gotta know because of the downloads. And I'm thinking, wow, okay, you know how easy I could have just hired a, a bot to get downloads? Like that shouldn't yeah. be the reason. Like you should see more of the human behind the Like, I can understand if you've done three episodes and you want to pitch, you know, a high-level person, maybe not. But if somebody's, you know, clearly doing the work and doing the thing, they got to start somewhere. And I know for me, if somebody asks me, a beginner, and I see that they've done the work, I'll go on the show. I don't Mm -hmm. care because I remember that feeling. So that's a huge issue in podcasting as well because you can't see the number of downloads. And I I almost feel like there needs to be a point where there's more transparency with a podcast like so you can kind of see behind the curtain a little bit more right
1: yeah, yeah. i mean my my take on that is like i don't i'm not really going to care about the number of downloads i'm going to get an impression from looking at you and looking at how you present as to whether you seem legit or not and yeah I did so i wanted to come on here and it's also like the number sort of like the analogy I was making or the reference I was making to a hundred thousand irrelevant followers versus a thousand that really align with your brand. If you have five listeners who are in this industry and could really learn more and see the value in this, I there's someone that's more useful to me selfishly than a million downloads from people who are, don't care about this topic whatsoever. So it, I think that, You know, it's easier to just see a number and say, "Okay, there's value there. And it's harder to do a little bit more work and try to figure out what the audience actually looks like. But, yeah, people pitching to you saying, oh, you know, I can get you or I've gotten X number of downloads. It happens with law firms and lawyers, too. Like, oh, we can get you, you know, the top of Google. We'll get you 20 new leads a month it's like, I know those are going to be not great leads. I'm probably not even going to want to take those cases. And so I don't even entertain that stuff, but it's like any, I'm sure it's just across industries. People's LinkedIn inboxes are a complete nightmare with <laughs> people are just like throwing numbers and what they can do for you.
0: It's, it's unbelievable, but it comes to that, back to that thing of like misleading. There's, it's misleading to people. And, um, you know, I talk to people and even my clients about podcasting and the, it's a slow burn. It's like if you're not going to get it, you're not going to do it for at least three to five years, don't bother. Just like any business, just like a career. like it's You're, you're going to have crickets at first. People aren't going to listen. It's you showing up over time and building the trust. It's when people start to listen, right? And it takes time. It, it, it really does. And I was actually seeing recently, I was reading an article, about one of the podcast platforms, were actually inflating downloads this was in 2019 i'm not going to mention it but i read this really interesting article and when you took away all those all those downloads it's people were cut into thirds almost huh. and there was once there was one certain one that everybody i saw on there had all these crazy downloads and i'm like what am i doing wrong so that makes it for the people that are trying to build this thing like you know from a real place uh, uh you know from being authentic and doing it organically, it makes us think, oh, well, we must suck because right. we right. don't have this and it's all bullshit. And that's, right. that's what drives me nuts, especially in this industry is that that is enough to get somebody to stop when they really have a message that should be out there. They should be, yeah. they should be speaking, but they won't because of somebody else having these downloads like having way more downloads, which isn't even real. Right. Yeah.
1: It makes it that more tempting to want to just say, well, if everyone's going to be buying all this fake stuff, then I guess I have to just to compete with them. And it comes up on Instagram a lot too, in terms of, especially with people at home during COVID and all this, there's even more of the like guru types who will say, Oh, you know, change your life. Just step into abundance. Like you'll make $10 million if you just buy my course. There are, of course, like legitimate business coaches and mentors out there who, you know, can share knowledge with you that will allow you if you put in work to achieve success. But there's so, so many people out there that are just, you know, I'm in my Lamborghini. Give me, you know, X number of dollars and I'll make you rich. And it's, it's so predatory, but it's also really difficult because the barrier to entry is so low to putting those ads out there. It's really hard for people to figure out like what is real and what isn't.
0: Yeah, and, that's you, true.
1: like you could become a guru tomorrow if you wanted to, like you could rent a Ferrari for a day, pay a photographer to set up a photo shoot. And you know, I'm sure you could run an ad where people would give you money to learn how to become rich. If you wanted to do that. And people are doing that all the time. I'm fortunate enough to work with clients who are like on the legitimate side of that, who are real business people who have actual value to offer people and they're not interested in you know showing the Lambo in their ads or any of that because they come to me to say like we want to avoid that. We want to get as be as authentic as possible and not violate any of the laws that prohibit that. And there are laws against that. You can't just throw out earnings claims with no substantiation or no disclaimers or anything like that. But it's just it's another aspect of social media. It's like on the one hand you have all this access to so much good, valuable stuff. And the flip side of that is it's very easy to put out misleading stuff.
0: Yeah. Income claims are dangerous, especially in like the network marketing industry. A lot of people Mm -hmm. get in trouble for that. Absolutely. Promising things. And um, yeah, it's, it's crazy, but I guess this is just a lesson for everything. The media is doing it to us. Like they're telling us things that aren't necessarily true. It's like, we really just got to, do our, you know, do our due diligence and really understand like what is real and what's not. I guess that's the real message of today. It's like, as a human, we really just need to, 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 to figure out like what we re- believe is real and true, because there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of black and white with the truth. A lot of the times these days, man.
1: Yeah. It definitely feels like now more than ever, there's more work to be done as the average person to figure out what's true and what
0: isn't. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, you just have to take on that task. Uh, there's a little more, little more work to be done before you part with your money.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. And that's why I think the power of podcasting is powerful too because when, when, you, when people buy, it's because they trust you. It's because they, they feel like they know you. They feel like they're giving you the money because they feel like that's the difference is that there's a lot of people that have been burned People have been burned, man. I've been burned like so many times because like, I just trust people without like, sometimes I'm like, ah, it's all right. And I get burned and I'm like, fuck, why'd I do that? You know? And, And I think having a podcast is like a good way for people to get to know people for who they are because you can't really hide. You kind of get to know them. And I think at the end of the day, like in a world full of craziness and lies, wherever you can figure out how to build trust or learn about somebody in a way, I think that's, that's all you can do. Right. I mean, it's learn. If you can learn about the person and you can, you build that trust, then at least I'm more inclined to give my money to somebody that I feel like I know than I am to somebody that's, you know, doesn't show their face, doesn't have any content, doesn't have a presence. It's like, what? It doesn't feel right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree with you. And that's, sort of tie it back I mean that's part of the appeal of influencer marketing in the first place is like oh, I feel like I know this person a little bit more I've seen them on vacation I've seen them you know eating breakfast and now if they're recommending a product I'm more likely to trust it
0: yeah
1: sort of the same thing that people are tapping into with influencer marketing generally but yeah I mean trust is so important I totally agree with you that longer format conversations make it harder harder for somebody who wanted to just come to defraud somebody to keep up the act for so long. Yeah. So it's definitely a better vetting mechanism. If you can listen to somebody for half an hour or, or longer and come away with that feeling like, okay, this guy seems legit.
0: Well, even as a specific example, like yourself, lawyers, right? Like there's a lot of lawyers, some good, some bad, some great, some amazing, some not so great. If somebody can hear, see you posting content, or see you have a podcast or see you having these conversations. People are like, I like that guy. I'm going to do business with that guy. It's like that. Boom. Right. Instead of the mysterious person doesn't show up, especially when it comes to things like that, people just want to feel comfortable and feel like they know you. Right. right. And, and I, I think like, man, as a lawyer too, like that's, I mean, you must feel that too. You like you want to show yourself more and talk like even with your content, it's great. And highly recommend, I'm going to make sure everybody goes and checks out your Instagram. Because that, you feel like you know you by that. And that makes me want to do business with you. And if I have an issue, you're the first person that I'd want to come to, 100%, right? I
1: appreciate that. And um, I I didn't realize the effect that was having necessarily until I was doing it for a little bit. And people were sharing that with me. I feel like a lot of people just don't really want to If they don't already have a lawyer or know somebody who had a similar issue, it's like, all right, I'm going to go on Google. I'm going to try to read Google reviews for whatever that's worth. And then, you know, a lot of people don't want to have to pick up the phone and call a law office. They'd rather just send me a DM and set up a time for a phone call or something like that. And a lot of people do come through that way. Just sending me DMs. Some of my biggest clients have DM'd me and started relationships that way. So I feel like it was, it wasn't like a strategy I came up with. It just sort of worked out that way. And and people like that more. It feels like I'm here to help you and not just, you know, I'm sitting up in my office somewhere.
0: Yeah. Good for you, man. So where's the best place for them to check you out? If they want to learn more about you work with you, like how does, other than Instagram, where else can we find you? And you aren't you on YouTube yet or.
1: Um, no, uh, YouTube is another one of those things where I know I need to be doing it. And I just have not had time this year to do it. Um, just too much work, which is a good thing. Um, but my website, robertfroinlaw.com, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Um, and those are Instagrams probably where I'm most active and those other two are also where you can find out more and get in touch.
0: Awesome, man. I really appreciate it. this. was a great conversation. I like got a lot out of this and, I always like to ask questions relating to my show and kind of what I'm going through. Cause I know a lot of people listening are going through the same thing. And as podcasts and social media grows, I really think that we need to understand this stuff. So um, who knows, man, down the road, I may want to have you on again because things always change and you know, I would love to like have that sort of those updates because it's super, super important, but keep doing what you're doing, man. I really, really appreciate you coming on.
1: Thanks, yeah, thank you for inviting me. I had a lot of fun talking to you. would be absolutely more than happy to come back on uh, whenever. So, yeah, thanks again for the invite. This is a lot of fun.
0: Cool, brother. Thanks, everybody. If you listened to this this long, appreciate it. I know we had a little bit of a conversation there um, involving a lot of different things, so we unpacked a lot. If you're still listening, thank you so much. Thank you for bearing with me on my sound, on my end. I'm gonna get it fixed, like I said, kind of out of my control today i wanted to make sure that this conversation got out to you and that it happened so make sure to go follow robert he has got a ton of amazing content on social media on um, particularly instagram and learn a lot we got to know this stuff especially if you're listening chances are you're listening you're an entrepreneur podcaster somebody that's looking to grow online and all this stuff is going to pertain to you at some point or another so Hit that subscribe button, leave us a five star review on whatever platform you guys are on and subscribe on YouTube if you got value and you wanna watch this the video version, all right? You guys have an amazing day, we'll catch you soon.